You're listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. Each week, we take a single episode of a science fiction TV series or movie and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm Kenneth. And tonight we're looking at the third episode, season two, Star Hunter, entitled Biocrime. Marcus and Callie have been duped into a team-building exercise by Travis. It doesn't work. There's no Marcus or Callie in Team Marcus and Callie. While not team-building, they encounter Taryn, an old friend of Marcus. Long ago on the mean city streets, they were vagabond drug addicts doing whatever needed to be done to survive or get their next fix. Marcus got out of that by becoming an apprentice raider. Taryn, not so much. Screaming for help and pursued by two blood-soaked medics, Marcus rushes to her aid, and Callie rushes to his aid, sending the medics packing. On the ship, Caravaggio determines that Taryn has been subjected to retropathic genetic hybridization. Her genes have been tampered with to turn her into a freak show sex toy by the villainous and almost mythical father abode. Everyone is outraged. Something ought to be done to hunt down that disgusting criminal that did this. But not unless we can find someone to pay us to do it. Dems the rules. Luckily, Taryn's father is a rich man and he agrees to pay them a bunch to... Track down the fiend, I think. Not to bring her home, because there's no point in that. She's just going to turn into some half-human, half-porcupine or something sex toy any minute now. Or die. Now, they must track down the elusive father abode, collect the data concerning the specific retropathic genetic hybridization that's been done to Terran so that it can be reversed. Also, they must work with the two cops who've been on the case and so far turned up nothing. It's unclear which case they were on, the missing persons case or the father abode case. But anyway, uh, although they've got their full cooperation, they are of no help whatsoever. Oh, and one other condition. Marcus can't work on the case. Taryn's father doesn't like him. Oh, so he scarpers off in a huff to find father abode first. He gets in touch with an old contact of his on the streets. Lumpy, a drug dealer and procurer for father abode. That doesn't go well, but... Travis and Callie pull his butt out of the fire. With Lumpy their prisoner, Travis pretends to be a buyer of Father Abode's services. With special Martian military tech implanted in his body, he is taken to Father Abode, who is a woman. Meanwhile, those useless cops are not so useless after all. They work for Father Abode, and they take Callie and Rudolfo prisoner. Rudolfo bribes them, and they're set free. They've already finked on Travis, though, so he's being converted into a sex toy, too. Callie and Rudolfo arrive in time and save him. Capture father abode, get the genetic alteration information, reverse the process, and everyone is happy. Except apparently the crooked cops are getting a third of Travis's bounty, and father abode was actually just an unstable clone, which dies. The real father abode is still on the loose. The end. Biocrime. Well, what do you think of biocrime? This one was dark. Oh, I guess dark is probably not the word I'd have used, but uh, sick is probably the word I would have used. Um, That's I, another I one. 
I don't I don't necessarily put those two as synonymous. You can be really dark and you can be really deep, but this one's just perverted and twisted. I mean, it's fundamental principle is you thought humans were nasty pieces of work. I can hold my beer, right? Yeah. I can I can do you one better here. I don't know what to make of that, frankly. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know what to make of that. I, I don't. <sighs> it's really easy. It's, it's really easy to sit and, and say, sure, you know, the ultra-rich are, they're ultra-rich. And with that, they lose all sense of morality and they become, let's go, perverts um, or, or sex criminals. Um, and, you know, both, Jeffrey both, Epstein. Both, yes, those all apply. Yeah, you know, I mean that is that is that is a, a a pretty common narrative, and for somebody who's not ultra rich, it's a very gratifying position, and that's why that's such a polarizing position because you can look at it and you can go, yeah, those people are nasty, but but it's also a simplistic view, and you know, there are people who are just as twisted at at any lower level; they just don't have access to genetic manipulation, but. But I guess what I don't get about it is why, why you want to go there as a creator of the show. Is it, is it literally just, I have to up the stakes because, you know, everybody's done child prostitution. I'm going to do gross genetic manipulation or I, I, I don't know. I, 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 it feels like they're trying to do one upsmanship on something, but I'm not sure what it is. And I don't, I don't know. It doesn't convince me as realistic. And I don't know. I, I, I find it hard to believe no matter how corrupt the system is that that is the kind of thing that two incompetent cops couldn't keep. It wasn't that they, wasn't that the cops were incompetent. They were very competent at what they were, which was being crooked. Okay. Two competent cops could keep the entire, uh, might of they were doing the job they were doing the job that the father abode clone was paying them to do right but they're two cops i mean i'm not saying there weren't other cops but my point is is that you know uh father abode's operation is so rich and and so specialized that that's just the kind of thing that it just doesn't feel credible that somebody wouldn't have already caught Father Abode. Or, if they're so good at hiding, Travis and the gang wouldn't have caught Father Abode. One of the two. But they caught there so trivially easily that whatever mechanisms they had in place to prevent Father Abode from getting captured, not clone notwithstanding, but weren't good enough to stop one guy on the job one, jo- one day. One bounty hunter. So, and, and frankly, Travis didn't do anything that made me think, wow, that is a new approach no one else would have tried. Does that, does that make sense? I mean, what he yeah. did was pretty bog standard, tracking him down and, oh, okay, follow lead, get this, find that, put some peat on somebody, boom, we're in. Ta-da! It just seemed like those two cops couldn't have stopped anyone else if they'd been trying to get there. So that that's all. It, it just I don't know. It, it I wasn't crazy about the episode. I didn't hate it. Uh, you know, it just it just was. Well, there are other episodes in the season that of which I have a much higher opinion. I'll grant you. 
But then again, I watched this episode for certain Chekhovian guns that fire throughout the season. And I won't tell you what those are right now, but right. They're, they're, they're here. Well, okay. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you one then that, uh, that bugged me about this because it's, it's a funny little bit of dialogue that my, my wife and I had during the course of, of this episode. I was explaining to her something that bugged me in the episode, and that is the Martian tech. So if you haven't, yeah, I didn't even bother to really mention what happened and it is, but, uh, uh, Callie cuts open Travis and she implants in him this super Martian tech stuff that is a secret tracker that pretends that masks itself as commercial signals. transmissions. Yeah, signals. So that a, a scanner would not think of them as being suspicious. And then you have to have a very special scanner to recognize it. And all that's fantastic. She stole that from Mars. Recognize it. And all that's fantastic. She stole that from Mars. So, and oh, by the way, if you get excited or too much adrenaline, it will become immediately obvious that you've got this and they will capture you and kill you, which is, of course, what you say to somebody if you want them to get their adrenaline up and, <laughs> you know, you know, and die. Okay, fine. That was not in any way meaningful in this story. It was a piece of detail that had no payoff in any way, shape, or form. If, if that was to give him away, then it failed to give him away and he got given away anyway so right they they could have got there through the tracker giving him away but they didn't they went a different route the tractor never gives him away and apart from the fact that they know where to find him the tracker plays no part so why did we have this scene where she goes on about the the restrictions and the problems with this tracker now i was kind of ranting on about that to my wife and she says well perhaps that that's going to be important in a future episode and my response to her was you've been watching way too much babylon 5 um <laughs> yeah. yeah uh so that, I, I mean okay maybe in the okay. next episode they okay. will go oh yeah you know he's got that tracker still in his arm so uh you know but but my more likely is to suspect that she took it out of his arm after the assignment, put it back in her pill case for yeah. later use. <laughs> we we are to assume that. Um, but there was, of course, that piece of dialogue where um, Abode's agents were uh, scanning him and one said, oh, it's just commercial signals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know. It, 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 was, it was supposed to be a little bit of tension, except that, well... Why would his arm be putting out commercial signals? <laughs> right? I mean, he's he zeroed in on where it was, and he's like, oh, it's just commercial signals. Like, uh, yeah. isn't that suspicious to you? It is a bit of a, <laughs> is a, bit of a plot hole there, I grant you. <laughs> I was like, okay. So, I mean, they, they made a big deal. And, of course, that violates the law of conservation of detail in programs, which is in its shortest in its shortest manifestation, every detail given is important, which, of course, is part of the Chekhovian gun uh, scenario yeah. there. But it's like, yes. hmm, I, I didn't think it was. I think it was just to kill a little time. Yes, this, it could be that the script was running a couple minutes short. Uh, that was not one of the Chekhovian guns I was thinking about, okay. by the way. Okay. 
Um, I did see the connection back to Novak. I saw that uh, in passing. So here's another guy who worked with Novak. Well, guy. Woman. <laughs> Person, yeah. Um, inconceivable, frankly. Inconceivable that somebody that they've got as documented as an assistant to Novak who was not a, you know, when he was working on, was it Callisto? Um, yes, it was Callisto. When, when he was working on Callisto, he was part of the official government organization. Everybody knows who he was. They have that information. Uh, it's just not conceivable that his assistant that they know all about, they didn't know it was a woman. It's just not not conceivable that they didn't have some records that could have at least told them that to me. The counter argument is that, of course, Father Abode is a pseudonym. And so we don't know what Father Abode's real name is. Well, then, well, again, then if it's a pseudonym, how would they know that this, that I don't, I somehow don't think that Novak's assistant was working under the pseudonym Father Abode at his laboratories. That's what I mean. So if they either, so they either know this person was, or they don't know that they worked with Novak. It just, it just doesn't make, I I mean, obviously it looks like we're going to be stuck with Father Abode again for a later episode. Don't tell me one way or the other. That was the bad part. I'm like, oh, really? Okay, whatever. Um, More of the same, this kind of sick, twisted stuff. But okay. Switching all the way back to the beginning of the episode. Yes. Team building. Ah. Travis tricks them out for team building. Well, it's not going to work. I'm not putting up with you, lady, or whatever Marcus said. That in character? Because everything I saw about this was that Marcus was doing his darndest to try to get on with them. And it was Callie that was, I don't care. Leave me alone. Go away. It seemed almost exactly reversed here. Callie Uh, was kind of, I mean, I'm not saying she was being friendly, but she was the one who was not making the, no, I'm not doing it, no way, no how, which is what Marcus was. And I thought, I never saw that coming. It seemed to me like some sort of clever way of just filling a moment before we got into the the biocrime part of the episode. Sure, but Callie could have said that line, and then that would have been in character. But yeah. here it seemed out as if the writer of this was not privy to what had happened previously on the, that was, that was, I also thought it was interesting. Hmm. It's a cliche. I'll go with this one. Uh, but I've never seen it executed as poorly, you know, the, the, the poor, the poor street urchin running around screaming for help and everyone ignoring her. Usually the director gives them, you know, um, look the other way. Pretend, you know, you're embarrassed. You know you should help, but but you know what will happen if you do. Your life is in danger. Uh, look away. Uh, move away. You know, show that you're uncomfortable with the situation. But what we saw was that nobody reacted to this girl at all. They didn't look at her. They didn't appear to hear her screams. It's as if they weren't in the room. Odd. Very odd. I'm thinking it's just a failure of direction, but it was... And universal. I mean, do you mean there is nobody else in a bar in Io 
where people do meeting stuff that is not privy to everything that's going on and knows that when a screaming girl runs into the room, you shouldn't look or you shouldn't go, should we call the cops? Nobody. Just our two, Marcus and Callie. The only ones that think, I guess I should do something. And they were kind of slow on the uptake on that, too. I don't think think Marcus even gave a hoot until he saw who it was. Right? It was like, eh, eh, what? oh, wait, that's Taryn. Oh. <laughs> it's like, uh, all weird. Very weird. Um, yeah. The director, by the way, is David Wheatley. Has he been on any so far this year? Uh, the first one. Let me double check that. The I could do that very quickly and easily. He was one of the more frequent directors for the season. Yes, he was on the he was on Rebirth. Okay. Uh, well, just some interesting choices there. Um, all right, let me ask this one. Because it's unclear to me. The timeline is is getting a little muddy here. I think I Marcus, know where you're going. Marcus has been with Travis for a while, right? Three years or so. Three years. So since Marcus was, what, 12? Um, I don't know how old the actor is, but I'm I'm guessing he's actually supposed to be playing him younger than Percy. But... Um, okay, three so three years, even worse. And at some point, I guess we're going to work on the assumption that he knew him from his beginning of his apprenticeship. I was thinking the about this. I, I, yeah, I, yes, I was thinking about this. Um, I went back and I played back that uh, a certain live dialogue and listened to it. I wrote, wrote it down word for word, and it um, was a friend like Travis, quote, unquote. And it was a friend like Travis who got Marcus off the street. You know, uh, I there are different ways to think about that. Was that saying that Travis was the friend who got Marcus off the streets of Io? That's possible. I, that's how I took that. Yeah, it's quite possible. And um, so because he the, was he was trying to sell Travis at that point. You know, he was trying, I forgot whether it was to Percy or Callie, but he was trying to expi- sell to them the virtue of having a friend like Travis. That's yes. that's the kind of guy Travis is, the kind of guy that would get me off the streets. That's what I took out of that, the way it was phrased. It's an odd, it is an odd phrase, but all right, go ahead. Sorry. Yes, and of course, I seem to remember from the first episode that Travis had saved Marcus's life in a, quote, hell hole bar on Oberon. Okay, so after he got off Io, they we wound up on. Eventually, he was on Oberon. Again, it's possible that he got out on Io into the Raider Apprentice Program. You know, maybe he goes down to Goodwill. They have like a job training thing. Mm-hmm. He shows inaptitude. The Raiders pick him up. I don't know how that works, but um, and it could be that when he got into the Apprentice Program, that's when he met Travis. And at some point, when Travis left, he took Marcus. He saved Marcus and took him with him kind of thing or, you know, some slight variation. He could have saved Marcus and then maybe he saved Marcus and got him into the apprenticeship. I don't know. But but as you say, it's three years. They've known each other at least three years that they've been together in some capacity. The timeline doesn't work very well for. Yeah, I'm not sure how that works. I was thinking about it probably more than. The screenwriter did. Um, and <laughs> yeah. The screenwriter was Peter I. Horton. 
again. Okay. Um, who's um, but some of um, who wrote for the first season, and he's written for this season so far. Right. And he, um, although on the screen, it's his last name is not given as Horton, but as Zorich, Z-O-R-I-C-H. Do we have any clue why he does that? No. It's, and, it's like uh, one of those, uh, I don't want my name on this script, therefore. Uh, uh, I don't know anything about that. I do know that it only happened in the second season. My name is Cordwainer Bird, and I don't want Ah, like Cordwainer Bird. <laughs> yeah. Uh yeah, bring in the star lost, will you? Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, or my, so, fa- okay. or, my, or my favorite one, Robin Bland. Yes, Terrence Sticks, and is a that's a classic. Um, okay, so but it's been three years, therefore Taron has still been in this for at least three years. I think we can we can yes. safely say that that yes. must be the case. So she has been missing, quote unquote. For over three years, Taryn's father knows Marcus, so it was going on even before Marcus got out. What was the case that what was the case that Taryn's father had the cops working on? So they've been working this case. Which case is this? The missing persons case or the father abode case? Because if you think about it, Taryn has only recently been taken by father abode. Therefore, for the last basically three years she's just been a missing person is that the case they've been working on that's my assumption yet it turns out that they're in the pocket of father abode it it's like mm, again it's kind of Hmm. just the script the script needed a good polish polish or two yes um yes because it again it seems like somebody could have found this girl who was frankly not missing because you know just ask the right person and and they could have could have found her. I thought that she was abandoned by her father. In other words, it's like, I don't care. I'm not looking for you. And because you made your choice, that's it. You're out. You're gone. But it didn't quite seem like that. And of course, when he gets her back. And let me tell you, that girl looks remarkably well for someone who's had at least three years of being a drug addict on the streets of Io, uh, of Sin City. In fact, everyone there, I mean, the, the, the bar owner and all the prostitutes, and uh, they're, they're pretty good-looking people considering that, you know, Lumpy's the only one who looked like he belonged there. <laughs> yeah, that was some facial makeup. Yeah. Yeah, but to get back to your um, first point, um, I got the impression that the senator was putting on a show of caring and that the cops were putting on a share of we're putting on only the lightest pretense of caring and mm-hmm. yeah well Callie did make that comment it's like you know that's as far as we're comfortable going with our inquiries and she said well maybe you, you uh, something about being more comfortable if you get out from behind your desk, desk or something yes. like that which you know it, it's very clear it's like you really haven't been working on this I, I got that I got that but it's like how long haven't they been working on it three years four years <laughs> Or is it, or is it or, only after that? Or it, or it could have been Travis um, told him about Father Abode. Uh, I got the impression that it was right right after he got the message. And why would they? Why did they? <laughs> why did they have the the dialogue that said? So the father comes up on the screen 
and he sends a message and he says, thank you for bringing this to my attention, Montana. I want you on this job. I hope 100,000 credits will be adequate for you uh, to, to take on this commission. End of message. Oh, I've also received another message from him on another carrier that says, meet me on IO in the police office. Mm-hmm. Like, why didn't they just have that line of dialogue in there? Why didn't we... he just say that? Well, well, as I think we said with the script, you needed a good pass. <laughs> I, it, it, that feels like they thought, oh, wait, how we forgot. You know, I, while they're filming, we forgot. Nobody will know how Travis, where Travis went to get them. How will he know? I know. We'll just write that in and have Garvaggio say that while people are walking through a corridor or something. Yes. Well, well speaking of the um, the of of Terrence's father, did you recognize the actor? I can't say that I did. He looked, you know, he looked familiar in a <laughs> sort of generic kind of way. But do you, do you remember his name is his name is Walker Boone, which. There's no, the there's, no, there's, there's no reason it should mean anything, I suppose. Actually, but, I have heard that name. Okay. But um, do, you remember, do you remember Skin of Evil? Yes. yes. Leland uh, T. Lynch. Yeah. I don't remember anybody named Leland T. Lynch he in was, Skin of it, Evil. In the first, of course, as you may recall, that in the first season of Star Trek The Next Generation, That's Gene Rodden... Natasha got killed, right? Yes, exactly. Gene Roddenberry had this rule about there shouldn't be one long-term chief engineer. So we got this whole line of them, and he was right. one of them. Hmm. That is not where I know that name from, but hmm. Huh. Well, it doesn't really matter. It it it's a it's a familiar and it's an odd enough name that made me when you say it. It's like now nah, I've heard it before, but it could it could literally be I saw it in the credits once on Star Trek: The Next Generation, and that's just the kind of name that sticks. Did you ever watch Warehouse Thirteen? No. Oh, no. Okay. Let's see, I have. Highlander the Raven. Highlander the Raven, yes. He was I've in one of that. those. Earth Final Conflict. I've seen some of those, yes. Um, He was in Due South, which is kind of fun. Not science fiction, but there it is. Yeah, my wife's one of my wife's favorite shows. We've yes. got all those. Yeah. Yes, he was in the episode they... Was he Diefenbaker? Ate... No. No. He, was an... he played the Crow Chief in... They eat horses, don't they? Okay. We've seen that episode not that long ago. Uh, I, I can I remember that episode. So there you are. He was. And he's, he appears to be a character actor. Yeah. Right. Not famous, uh, but anyway. Yeah, that's, I guess, enough for Mr. Walker Boone. Are we to imply in the end that the cops do not get arrested? Um. Yes. Um, I can tell you there is a Travis of... literally pays them off. No, actually, we no, he doesn't. Um, because they never, 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 they never actually got their money from it. That was just bribing someone with the promise of somebody else's money, and they're yeah. not fulfilling it. We've seen that trick before. I can tell you, there's a line of dialogue in a in a subsequent episode. That revisits this ep- that revisits this episode and explains what happened to them. Okay, I just thought it was interesting because the last really we see of it is Travis is talking to Callie and he says, uh, "Are you going to explain why I'm supposed to give those cops a third of my bounty or something of that effect?" Yeah, and you know, okay, fair dues. Actually, you'd be dead. So I think in that case, Rudolfo actually had a pretty good argument to say that was the cost of getting you out alive 
you know, cost of doing business. Actually, I don't have any problem with Rudolfo doing that, at least to get out of it. What I have the problem with is that they don't go, uh, no, I'm not paying you a bribe and I'm turning you over to internal affairs. As I recall, they, um, they, they bugged out. Oh, well, that could be. All right. Um, that would be smart of them to bug out before that happened. But because uh, I wouldn't trust. Yeah. <laughs> that's the I mean, kind of things like collecting a bribe when it's all well, falling down about your ears if, is if not you look the time at, if you look at that yeah. if you look at that scene where with Rodolfo getting himself and Callie out of that room that by with the promise of a bribe um that did you tell though it was just it, it it functioned to get our two bounty hunters out of the room so they could go save Travis right yeah yeah it was just mm-hmm <laughs> And we and we, and we, and we, yeah. we saw we Just saw Lucretia Scott in the in season one pull the same trick on a guard at a prison. We we did, and the difference being is that the guard probably has every reason to believe that nothing is going to happen from this, but the cops know that Father Abode is going to go down. And or think that's a possibility and that his network is going to go down. They're part of that network. If they bug out now, then they bugged out without getting their money. And then why did they let them loose if they didn't think they were actually going to get their money? <clears throat> See, it just no. it, it, it was I would have been much happier if Callie had just beaten them up. I mean, they weren't restrained. They were just sitting there at the table when she did the gun thing. If they just. She'd just been a little more competent at it. She could have beaten them both up and and escaped, and it would have had the same effect. Just it just odd, just odd choices. Perhaps odd choices in the way they do things. I, I have a suggestion about the reason for that choice, and uh, I'm not saying it's, I'm not saying it's necessarily a good reason, but it it may be the reason. And that is, it's um, this episode gave Rodolfo a chance to prove why he he was on the ship. Um. I'll take that point. Uh, it did give him something. It did give him something to do, and he did appear once to be not an incompetent buffoon. And and I did note that in my notes. I don't know if that was the right place to do it, but okay. I mean, we'll accept that might be a possibility that that's what they were going for, and they needed to find a way that wasn't uh, it wasn't using violence to get the get the job done. <laughs> I did notice a, a major um, flaw in the Father Abode clone's business plan. Yeah, I see a major flaw in it too, but okay. Well, what's your major flaw? There's this new model of clone. It takes less than a day to grow from one cell to a full-grown adult. The slightest injury, it dies. Yeah, that's a, that's a flaw. Probably because, you know, let's face it, the people who want to buy a sex slave probably are into a bit of rough um more i'd say more than a bit yeah so i'm saying that that's probably a, a an extremely uh poor uh customer satisfaction uh and then i would be very upset and father abode would have a problem if i was yeah. that rich and yeah that was that was definitely a little weird the other part of it is is this father abode is a clone Yes. Father Abode's clone is running the business. Father Abode's clone is doing the business, 
Father Abode's clone is collecting the money, Father Abode has no useful part. The real Father Abode has no useful part in this business. Right. Right? I mean, why create a middleman <laughs> who is yourself? It, it, I mean, yes, Father Abode has managed to escape out into the outer solar system and 10 years ago or whatever it was. 10 years and ago. That may have been metaphorical. Could have been. Uh, could have been metaphorical. So it's, you know, years, decade ago, long before you, 200,000 years before you guys ever got here um, kind of thing. But what does Father Abode get out of having somebody else running a business in their name? And obviously that clone didn't last very long, so... How, how many clones are there? Who knows? Exactly. And the, and the other question is, how long did that clone last? Um, it, exactly. The only, only thing we know is that Lumpy said its time was up. But how long was the time? Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense, but I mean, if they have to have a continuous stream of clones to run this business, which again, unless... Unless they're wiring funds, and why would they? <clears throat> you know, <laughs> why yeah. would they wire funds out to the original father as well? It's like my business, my money. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so that that struck me as a flaw in the business plan too. Yes, and you know, competition. They could have another clone doing business somewhere else, and then you know, you're working against each other. The law of supply and demand. It all goes down. The, the market crashes from freakish sex toys, and yeah, it's just, just an odd. Also, ah, oh, we've already started the genetic manipulation on you, Travis. Gosh, I hope we can back that up. Oh, yeah, we can. Okay, no problem. <laughs> like, um, I don't know. Why did they do that? Uh, if you have the files, you can reverse it. You you could reverse it, but I mean, nothing happened from it. It's another one of those nothing happened. It's like the tech never really betrayed Travis, and the the genetic genetic manipulation didn't start him growing a beak or anything. No. He didn't get in pain. He wasn't. It, nothing happened, and it's it, it's we never even saw him get the genetic manipulation started. It's literally just we've started the process, and then later, oh, it's been taken care of. <sighs> Just just strange choices they make. Yeah. It it just feels like let's throw in the kitchen sink. People will they'll be a lot more worried about Travis if they think he's gonna turn into a sex toy. I'm like, nope. Actually no. No, never occurred to me. Not for a second not one second's tension or suspense was generated by that revelation. You know, the tech not working a little bit. A little bit you go, ooh, he might get caught. Ooh, he might get caught. Oh, he didn't get caught. Whew. Oh, he got caught for something else. Okay. Uh, huh. All right. I will say this, that of all the episodes of Star Hunter we have watched so far, this is Percy's best. Go on. This, she's doing right what she should be doing, sucking blood and pus out of putrefying bodies. That fit her to a T. She's got it. She's competent at it. She kind of keeps quiet most of the time. Not sure about that whole bit where I can get the answer. From her, I'm not sure what that was. She got one. She got the one word she needed. She she got one word out of him. Why and how are the two words that come out of? Why did that? (laughs) Why did that work with a catatonic person? You know, as everyone said, you're not going to get an answer out of a catatonic person. Sure, I am. I'm. I'm thinking what her mind. She was thinking. I'm so annoying 
that I'm going to keep at her until she just tells me something to get me to shut up. Because that's the only reason I can think of that that woman finally blurted out the word lumpy. Shouldn't have even known she was talking to her, right? It just, I don't know. It just didn't make any sense. Again. But I like, I like, she wasn't, she wasn't actually that annoying. She was doing something superfluous but useful. And, uh, and it was kind of suitably gross. So I kind of, I kind of liked it. It's like, I kind of feel like, I kind of feel like that if I were writing a script, this is what I would do with Percy. If I weren't allowed to kill her. All right. I'll Um, I'll take this as a segue. Okay. Because, um... When I was writing, when I was watching the episode and writing and pausing it and writing notes this afternoon, I did write down some lines of dialogue. Here's one. Percy, I'm at my best with people when they're unconscious. I, I, I agree. I, 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 and, I, then, <sighs> and then the next line, this is from, from Caravaggio in, in the Redux episode. Mm-hmm. No wonder That's we get along. along. Uh, that would struck me as an odd line. I also noticed the um, delivery of it. Mm-hmm. Um, then um, I paused when I got to that point uh, uh, in the Redux episode. I paused as I was watching this. I was watching the Redux episode on my computer, and then I got out the DVD of the Star Hunter twenty three hundred episode, and I put that in the in the Blu Ray player, and I fast and I skipped to that scene, and I watched it. And in that, in the original version, Caravaggio's answer is, and I quote, I see. Interesting. Um, so my thought, when she said that line, when she said, I'm at my best when people are un- unconscious, I, you know how you, you when you look at a, a, let's call it a piece of art. When you look at a piece of art, it's what you bring to it, right? A lot of it is what you bring to the, to what you're watching. I took that as a sly wink from the writer to me saying, I know, I know she's awful. So let's go with it and say that line. That, that is, that is not Percy saying that line because that's not in character for Percy at all. That's in character for me talking about Percy. And so when the writer says that I'm going, ah, they get it. He's apologizing to the audience. I get it. I understand now what this whole scene is about. This is about apologizing for how awful Percy has been for 25 episodes. And then when Caravaggio says his line, I, you know, why we get along so well, I truly couldn't figure out what the heck they were talking about. Is, is that Caravaggio saying, well, since I'm not actually con- a, a conscious sentient being, that's why I get along? I think that's what they were going for, but it is a weird line. It is. I see makes it's, more sense. It does. It does. I I don't get that one at all. I don't I don't get A, it didn't make any sense. B, now that you tell me that they intentionally did it post post hoc. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know. Uh, that's odd. What were they what were they trying to say? I I don't get it. Huh. Yeah. I thought it was like, as I was really, I really, I was really listening to that line, and I knew that when when the producers went from Star Hunter when when the producers went from Star Hunter twenty three hundred to the second season of Star Hunter Redux, they rewrote some of Caravaggio's lines. Well, if they if they substantively rewrite them, that's 
a concern. I could, I could, I mean, I haven't seen Star Hunter 2300. I haven't seen how the new Caravaggio is. I obviously, he's the guy that we saw at the beginning of Rebirth. Yes. Uh, and then because they've got that line of dialogue, oh, you look different. Eh, you know, okay, fair enough. Caravaggio's got different looks. I, I'm actually reasonably fine with that um, as a way of recasting that particular character. But I could imagine that if this is an AI, that that the AI comes with a personality and my impression would be that this other caravaggio would have a different personality he did and so i can see them rewriting it to be snarkier or more consistent with the previous one i'm okay with that but that's a those are not equivalent lines they're not the the original caravaggio from star hunter 2300 was a bit uh condescending really more so than the other one yes well that is actually a fairly condescending line i see yeah i mean and you by the way you you got the delivery right that was exactly how you said it (laughs) i can't know that's how i deliver that line i i could see that one i you know it's a it's a it's a statement it's the kind of statement that if a person said it in real life Right. It's going to depend on your relationship with that person. But you're you're either just going to have to give a sort of noncommittal. I see. Or you're going to rip into him with some smart aleck remark because it's the kind of comment that deserves. You know, if you're if if a person's going to say something self-deprecating, you you pile on or you go noncommittal or if you're one of those people you might go oh no no you're wonderful with people but you know no one's going to say that about percy so uh you know that's not a not a realistic uh course of action but yeah the um the caravaggio from star hunter 2300 was a bit of a smart ass i i'm kind of kind of sad now um it's they needed one (laughs) uh all right, let let's ask um <clears throat> I guess we kind of we kind of addressed this, but I mean, yeah, what's up with the clones? Uh, so they made the clone of Callie to prove that they could do it because they thought they were gonna do Okay, so so Travis comes in, he's got a vial of of Callie's DNA skin, skin sample, yeah. In a big tube of liquid, and um, uh, he, they take it from him. He's unconscious for an hour. In that hour, they create the clone. They don't tell him that they created the clone. They they went ahead and did whatever expensive operation or whatever it is to create this clone, speculatively based on the basis that they think Travis is going to ask for a clone. It's a fair. It's a fair cop, but they haven't received any payment for it. So they've basically run the production line without getting the money, which is not good business, back to their business model. Uh, And then after they've done that, they don't tell him they've done that. That's when she tries to do the upsell on him to have modifications done, right? So she doesn't start hard-pressing him for, oh, the kink and some wings, perhaps, and a beak and maybe a little snake's tail and (laughs) any of that weird, weird stuff and is that really the right time to do that no (laughs) after you've already made the clone 
I mean, I guess you're going to modify the clone po- after you've made the clone like they do to the girls they find on the streets. But it just, again, kind of weird. And then where did we go with it? The clone comes in. The clone's kind of nice to him because, well, that's what the clone's been programmed to do. Yes, it saves his life in a perfunctory kind of way and dies. No moral dilemmas. No uh, nothing, really. Just, you know, it's it's a, it, it's like all the other things, like giving him the genetic modification. Nothing's done with it. It's like, oh, there's a clone. That's inconvenient. We'll kill her. And they just, they just die. You know, so I, I don't, I don't get where they're going. I mean, I, no, no, that's not true. I'm sure I get where they're going. They didn't get where they were going. That's, let's, let's not put this on me. Put that on them. Yeah. I have a couple of points. I'll pick one off my page here. Absolutely. Um, I see that the this character, uh, uh, the older prostitute, Marcus pronounced her name Vayla. Okay. Um, we will see her one more time. Okay. Well, since they're hanging around in Sin City, and she's you know runs uh, what was what was that bar in Casablanca? Rick's American Cafe. Rick's. There we go. See, she's just like Rick. Yeah. She's she's gonna be that 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 perfectly reasonable she looked she looked fantastic for somebody who's seemed to have a pretty hard life there but yeah okay. yeah and that was i did look her up on imdb that is deborah mccabe uh who's a character actress um whose most famous role seemed to be in one of the saw movies <laughs> i hear she was a real cut up um oh, oh haven't seen the saw movies i assume they involve blades but I don't want to know. Um, I don't. It's not my genre, but I assume it. I generally, from here, that they involve uh, rather grisly ways of suffering and dying. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, <laughs> but the um, and the other one here is like um, actually two other points beyond that. Um, did you notice the um, internal communicators? You mean the ones that you have in their ears? Yes. They they had those in the last episode. Yes, too. in fact, I meant to mention it during the recording, and I didn't. So I, I saw I mentioned it this time. So it's um uh, it's such a convenient way of handling it. Um, do you think about uh, go back to the to the original Star Trek series? Uh, usually, you have Kirk and company beaming down to the hostile planet of the week, and the baddies confiscate their communicators. Mm-hmm. It's nice to have it in the ear. It is nice to have it in the ear, but of course it leads to inevitably to this question. Why didn't the father abode's goons detect it with their scanner? <laughs> yeah. All I had to do is read. I'm guessing that this is just basically everybody has that. That's my guess. This is everybody. It's sort tech. of a standard equipment. Yeah. Kind of thing. So it didn't. And it appears to be not a physical device. It appears to be implanted. Yes. Is that... Impl- implanted. So, so that's what I got out of it. Yeah. So they would be... Um, and you have to push it to talk. Right. Because Callie intentionally went, I'm out, and hand off, and as if I'm cutting communication line, as opposed to a permanent two-way communication going on there. Which, you know, wouldn't make any difference to Captain Kirk. They just pin his hands behind his back and then he couldn't use the communicator even though it was stuck behind his ear yeah that, that one's an easy one to circumvent but okay. but it is a piece of tech which you would think they might be able to home in on or scan yeah, so un- unless the people who are scanning had one too yeah but would would you 
would you let somebody go with such a device in? That, well, I, you know, you can see the problem with, with the, the notion of having that embedded in your body. You can't be extracted from it without surgery, a right. minor surgery perhaps. But there's bound to be circumstances where in criminal endeavors where you couldn't, wouldn't be allowed to have one of those things. And this strikes me as one of them, unless they have, I don't know, something to jam it. That would, that would be exactly what would happen. If, if everybody had them implanted, then the bad guys would develop something that they would just put around your neck that would jam it. Okay, you're coming with us? Fine. I think we'll you, just, I think you just put more thought into that than Peter Horton. <laughs> I think that we collectively have put more thought into every episode we've <laughs> talked about than the writers have yeah. put into that much of it. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> It, th- this is, you know, this is one of the things that, that truly does fascinate me and disappoints me about so many science fiction shows, because there is a, a tendency to create technology that says, hey, I can create this idea. Wouldn't it be great? And it's solving an immediate problem that they need. And that's fine. You know, that that's fine. But then you start to think about it and you go, wait. This would change the way people do things completely. It, it, it is, it is, you know, the the long stand when when we were in that phase to when everybody was finally getting cell phones, and TV programs still relied on them having to go down to a payphone, a phone booth. Yeah, and you're like, yeah, that's see, that's not how an FBI agent's going to be. Or they would be in a situation and you go, are you forgetting you've got a cell phone in your pocket <laughs> because because you don't. You don't think about it. It takes it takes true visionary to develop or or conceptualize technology, and then kind of imagine where it really is going to go. And yeah, uh, I I I find that idea. I've always found that fascinating. I'm not in any way, shape, going to claim to be the visionary, but I'm pretty good at taking something that they do and and thinking about it if you have enough time. Think about it and go, well, then this is going to change the way you, you know, you take people, take people hostage. I mean, that's the first thing you do, right? You take somebody hostage, you throw their phone on the side of the road. You can't do that if it's behind their ear. No. <laughs> Maybe you have to hit them behind the ear. You've got to, you've got to come up with, because, you know, that's, uh, I'm always thinking of better ways to kidnap people. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> got it. In, All right, what in, else? Yeah. in this episode, uh, which we do um, get a hint, uh, that a very strong hint, that Callie has daddy issues. Yes, I, I got that impression. And I will say that the way they set it up, you know. What? Okay, so we are taking a very dim view of humanity in this, in this episode. I mean, the whole thing about rich people are going to then start having genetically modified freaks to have sex with is is a pretty dim view of, of humanity. Because, Very. again, as we say, you, you, you know, unfettered by the reality of not having enough money, once you get out there, then that's the kind of stuff that's going to happen. So that is not an unrealistic position then in this with this outlook on life that the show is presenting in this totally realistic and believable position when Callie says rich people aren't going to care. They're going to be more concerned about their image. You know, 
That sounds like a wholly consistent view of this universe to me. In fact, it sounded so wholly consistent to me that when Dad popped up and said, yeah, no, I'll pay you 100000 to to find him, I said, oh, if, oh, actually, it was after he sent the message, meet me on IO at this place. That was the moment I said, ah, Taryn's dad is Father Abode. He's going to be the villain of this piece. He, he doesn't care about his daughter. He's going to be the nastiest guy pretending to be the nice father. I was wrong. I was completely wrong, but that was exactly where I thought they were going to lead me through this path of cliche. And that would, <laughs> and I, would have made a much darker episode. It would have, because they're pretty dark episodes. And, you know, she's been missing for three or four, at least, let's say four years, at least four years. And dad hasn't been able to find her with all his money yet. Right. You know, it again, you should have hired I, I a got, bounty hunter four I got years the impression, ago. I got the impression he wasn't really trying but he seemed pretty gung-ho once they found her, right? Oh, okay, well, then let's yeah. do it. Uh, yeah. It's whatever works for him at the time. So, yeah, when she was surprised, and in a way, I was kind of pleased. It's like, oh, I didn't think there were fathers like that. Yeah, I get that. I get, obviously, I've gotten it from the first three episodes that she doesn't like her family. Maybe it's her father in particular, but clearly she didn't like members of her family. Um. So. And we will meet that of family. course we will. <laughs> in in episode four. Ah, well, at least they didn't hold it out for the season-ending cliffhanger. <laughs> I, I would have bet, I would have bet you yeah, 50 bucks that her family was going to turn up because obviously they have to. They've been talking about him enough uh, in, in oblique terms that that had to be going there. All right. Fair enough. You got anything else? Uh, that's it. It's like the next episode of Star Hunter Redux is Chasing Janus. Chasing Janus. Oh, that's and interesting. When, Janus is the two-faced. Uh... Yes, that's that's the reference. It's also her father's name. And <laughs> okay. if I seem let me double check that detail, it is and it is his name, Janus Janus Larcadia, and his wife is Vesta. Interesting pattern of names in that family yeah yeah and Callie is probably short for Callista yes I detect a theme yeah yeah alright and then we can decide um, then, we, then we can talk about whether her evaluation of her father is accurate okay well Kenneth thank you for joining me my pleasure and listeners I do hope you'll join us all again next time on Fusion Patrol We hope you've enjoyed listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. There are over 500 previous episodes available at FusionPatrol.com. Come join the conversation on Twitter, our website, or Facebook. Find out how you can become a supporter at Patreon.com slash Fusion Patrol. Supporters get early access to all regular episodes, bonus episodes, and more. There's even an optional podcast series where we're looking at the classic TV series, Babylon 5. Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf. This has been a Lone Locust production. On the next episode of Fusion Patrol, we'll be looking at the third episode of the 11th hour, entitled Cryptos. We discussed whether science plays anything more than a peripheral role in this eco-thriller. If a realistic portrayal of academic publishing could ever be sufficiently exciting for an ITV primetime audience, and whether the garish computer animations would make even a remotely usable interface.
please come join the conversation on Fusion Patrol. <laughs>